Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo, and hello everybody, Mike here. Welcome to another wonderful, awesome, festive episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. It's almost Christmas. We are getting down to the last few shopping days of the year. And as I finish up topics for this year, kind of end on a good note, I've got some kind of things that I'm kind of looking back on and things, an episode that I'm going to do uh, probably next week that's going to be looking forward. But I'm going to get right to my guest, and it is none other than JT, Triple Crown 24. This is your 428th appearance on this show. Welcome, JT. Thank you. I think I'm one whole punch away now from getting a free medium fountain drink for appearing on the show. So looking forward to that next time. Yeah, I I send that to all the guests. No, no, no. Um, Thank you for being on today, JT. I have to admit... I am a little bit bummed out today, not because the Cowboys squeaked out a win win against the one-win Texans, which was very good. We're recording this on Sunday, air date Wednesday, but the dang Eagles won again. So what does that mean, JT? Well, Mike and his hubris as a Cowboys fan at the start of the season proclaimed that there was no way the Eagles were going to make the playoffs. And not only are they heading to the playoffs now for sure, but as a result of his prediction, he will now have to sport his very own Triple Crown 24 Sports Cards V-neck t-shirt at the Dallas Card Show next time I'm in attendance. So if you see Mike in the really sharp-looking black shirt of a nice electric blue logo, you can thank the Philadelphia Eagles for that one. You know, I don't know if that's punishment for me or punishment for everyone else that's going to have to see me in a V-neck. Maybe everyone. I don't think there's any winners here except for myself and the Eagles. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Eagles looked really good. They throttled the Giants uh, 12-1. and but this isn't a football podcast, although your Lions are playing very well. They beat the Vikings today and are really in great position to make the playoffs because they hold uh, the two teams in front of them. They hold tiebreakers over, so they, they just need to keep winning, as do all NFL teams want to do that. But we're here to talk baseball because you guys may not know, JT has his own channel, Triple Crown 24. He is a full-time sports car dealer and an amateur sports card psychologist. He has his own podcast called Sports Card Psychology. And this is kind of a psychological thing because you and I were talking and we brainstormed this episode. As I was going through my top 50 cards that I posted on Baseball Collector, 
my original channel. If you've never seen that or never seen the channel, I'm going to put a link down below uh, to go watch that because I, I just show the top 50 cards in my collection this year. I do it every year and kind of look back and kind of allows me to draw a line in the sand in terms of where my collection stands, how it's grown, what's changed, all that kind of fun stuff. It's good to do that once a year for me. At least I like doing it. But what came out of that was me looking at it and going, man, there's a lot of cards that I bought a long time ago, right? There's certainly cards that I added, have added recently over the last few years, but a lot of cards that I added pre-pandemic. And so the theme of this episode, JT, that I want to talk through is the idea and a concept that you and I talk about a lot. I mention it a lot on this channel, but I want to dive deeper into it. And that's that collecting is a marathon and not a sprint. First question for you, do you agree to that with that? And, and maybe even better than that question, what does that mean to you when you hear that statement? Well, it will probably come as no surprise that I do agree with that. And I think that is a very common thought process among a lot of people, especially those who are pretty seasoned and have been around the hobby for a long time. I don't think that it's necessarily put into practice, though, as much as we may think it and reiterate it, because it can be tempting to push towards the proverbial finish line of whatever that may mean for you. But it takes time. Uh, it, in terms of what it means to me, it just means that anything you want to do in the hobby, if you are on my side of the table where you're trying to grow a, a card business, uh, it takes time and you have to scale. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight. And if you're someone in it who's just in it for pure collecting on Mike's side, then it takes time to build up a crazy collection of, of any sorts. And I guess that is relative to what your standard would be owning all the cards that you would want to own or completing a certain project. These things just don't happen overnight. And I think in some sense it's more rewarding because it doesn't happen overnight. It's an accumulation. And if, if it was instant, we had that instant gratification, it just wouldn't be as rewarding overall, at least in my opinion. So that's kind of where I stand in terms of collecting being a marathon more than a sprint. Yeah, there's uh, one thing you said there about the rewards of collecting and accomplishing something that you've been working for for a long time, I think has tons of value um, that I think we just kind of dismiss out of hand a lot of times because we're such a society now that is bred for give it all to me and give it all to me now. That just feels like where we are in our world. And a lot has been lost about the journey. And I, I look, I find myself guilty of this at times as well, wanting to complete sets or wanting to do things or feeling that FOMO, right? There's this FOMO that, that overtakes someone's brain and you end up making maybe either rash and or not well thought out decisions about what collections to add, what price to pay, all of those things. You know, when I get compliments on my collection all i think about is dude it's not like i just won the lottery and bought all these cards you know i have bought 
slowly accumulating. I am the tortoise, not the hare in the story. And I've read Aesop's fable and the tortoise wins. Like, I, I don't, I think this idea that you just have to go and go and go and buy and accumulate is dangerous and expensive. And you can just make a lot of mistakes. I think for you personally, Mike, one of the things that stands out to me is that when you did your top 50 list, if we add up, and this is just me spitballing here, so correct me if I'm mistaken on any of these figures, but basically overall your top 50 is now worth double what you paid for it. And there might be some people out there who are looking at that and saying like, oh, wow, he, he doubled up on what he spent. That wasn't necessarily the goal. I mean, I assume that you would have preferred that that would have been the outcome rather than it being half of what you had paid for it previously. But I think a lot of that goes into timing and going after things, because if you had rushed on some of these cards, you may not have gotten the best deal possible, which might have as an opportunity cost precluded you from picking up something else that was on that list, or perhaps even some of the smaller items, because we're only looking at 50 cards in a several thousand card collection among the ones that you track. So it's not necessarily that you might have missed out on the big pieces, but you might have missed out on some of the smaller ones along the way, or perhaps it would have persuaded you, I guess, one way or another uh, to pursue various cards since you have so many on, on your list. Would you agree with that? Uh, totally would agree with that. I think a lot of collectors lack the important characteristic of patience and you, you know, we're afraid to walk away. It's that FOMO thing. It's, I don't want to miss out. And I've walked away from plenty of cards that I look back and regret not buying no doubt, but there are so many more cards that I look back and go, man, I'm sure glad I bought that when I did. And so it's this weird idea of taking advantage and kind of this juxtaposition and having to balance the idea of I want to take advantage when an opportunity presents itself to pick up a card that I think is fairly priced and that I wanted to add to the collection for a while and going, you know, maybe I should just, maybe I can't buy that today. I'll buy it. It'll be, there'll be another one. Right. And the lack of patience never ceases to amaze me when I, when I see collectors just hungry and itching and, and rushing into different purchases. Uh, when I talk to them, it's not so much that, you know, I don't know when I watch a video or, or hear about somebody picking up a card, Hey, I, I never go, man, you should have waited on that. Or, or are you sure you made the right decision? Uh, I say that a lot to guys when I hear about that, they're going to sell a card. Like, are you sure? Like, are you really sure? Cause if you, <laughs> if you want to ever get that again, it might be difficult. So I, I hear that a lot too, you know, are you sure that you want to move this right now? And I guess it just, it depends on a variety of factors. And when watching YouTube, since that's where, you know, one of the platforms where we're on here, if you're seeing someone show off something that they got in the mail, or even if it's on social media where they got it on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, wherever you may prefer to deal with, and interact with people in cards you just don't know the full story behind it i guess you know what what really went into it 
for that person. And I don't think that we need everyone's life story on every single card purchase. You know, let's just sometimes just show off the card and appreciate it and move on. But that's, uh, I think that's really crucial uh, to think about that because as you mentioned, it could selling something or buying something prematurely could have a ripple effect where it impacts your ability to go after something later on. Uh, I know that in the past you've targeted certain cards at the national and in your case where you were able to go after certain things because you waited and you were patient on other cards. I know that this past year you waited on the satchel page rookie and we had waited several days for you to pick that one up and you had seen a few, you had talked about a few, but you were able to get a pretty good deal that maybe would have precluded you from, say, your 53 tops mantle or, or something else that was high on your list that you also acquired at this show. So you just never really know what the the outcome may be. And it's not something it, it's almost like crying over spilled milk in a sense, where if you're trying to look back and, and see, oh, man, I should have done this or I should have done that. I know one of the stories you like to tell is the. I forget which national it was the deal of the day for the Bowman 53 Bowman color mantle. Uh, yeah, it wasn't even were... a deal of the day. It was just a card I saw and didn't buy. It was a five and it was $150. That was 2014, by the way. So a long time ago. And you look back on that now. And I think rather than being, you know, pouty because you eventually got it. You learn from that and you just, you realize that, Hey, maybe if, if I see something like this and it makes sense, then I'm going to go ahead and grab it. And by using that, it ended up probably saving you more in the long run than if you had just kind of tried to retcon that in some sense. Yeah. And patience can be something we, we practice in the long term and even in the short, like when you're at a show to be patient, well, you're just going to be there a few hours or maybe you're at the national and you're going to be there a few days. I, I try to preach patience to people go around, look around, don't buy the first one you see of whatever it is card you're looking for. Be, be patient with that because again, unless it's a very, very rare or one of one of your favorite player or whatever, there's going to be another one there. And not necessarily, I mean, you know, a big show like Dallas or Nashville or, Somewhere, you you know, you can be patient. The Philly show, you can walk around. Um, just, I always say, walk the tape, walk the entire floor until you buy anything. Exercise some patience because you will likely go, oh, yeah, that first one I saw was the best deal. I'm going to go back and buy it. And what people, <laughs> the thing they tell themselves and they, they, they fool themselves into thinking that if I don't get this, I'm going to miss out on it. It's going to be gone when I get back. And that is, I'm not saying that's not a risk. It is like it's happened to me before where I've gone back and somebody else thought it was a really good deal and they took advantage of it. And, but I've, I've made more, if this makes any sense, if I can explain this right, I've made better decisions by waiting and then showing patience and ultimately buying the, a better card at a better deal than if I buy the first one. Does that make sense, JT? Absolutely. I mean, it, at, the, at the time of recording this, I went to a show earlier today and that same thing happened to me. There was a card that I was looking at. The second time I had walked through, it was gone. 
And yeah, that is a risk that you do run, but it was a card that I didn't really care too much about. I didn't feel any sense of urgency. And yes, there are certain things. If, if you're a super collector and there's a one of one that you need for a rainbow, then unless it's some ridiculous price, it's probably something that you shouldn't walk away from if you're, if you're that concerned about it. But I think when you get into that show environment, especially, or even if it's online where you have an auction and I think auctions, it brings a different sense of FOMO because there's a running clock where, you know, like, okay, I have to make a decision within this amount of time. And I think once you start thinking about that, it really starts to spiral where you may not consider, is this something that maybe I can get at a later time? Do I need to get this exact version of this card that is going up for auction right now? And it's difficult to separate those feelings. I am definitely plenty guilty of it, but I would say that most often, very few cards are not there the second time that I go around. And I don't know if this is the case for you personally, but I say very few cards. I can't even give you an example of what they were. There's nothing that today I'm I'm still thinking about and still regretting that wasn't there the second time around. I mean, one of them was today. I remember that, but there was one even yesterday that I remember. I don't remember what it was now. I can't, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm thinking about the cards I did pick up. Is that kind of how you feel too? Is there any, I guess, lingering regrets or? Totally, but no, I honestly, I mean, again, cards I just passed on period, you know, it wasn't that it was gone or whatever later, but just cards I went, oh man, I should have gotten that, you know, Um, now it's a lot more expensive, but not so much. Again, I've made more money by being patient in terms of better deals over time then I've lost out on, on the cards that have gotten away. You mentioned auctions. And I think that's fascinating because it, I don't know how many times you've seen this. I've seen it where there'll be a card I'm bidding on pick a vintage card, you know, whatever I'm bidding on it. And Oh, I'm like going really that much. You know, uh, I was building bidding on a Gil Hodges, uh, PSA three rookie 49 Bowman. And I had put in a snipe. And it went significantly over my snipe. And I'm like, that seems awfully high. And I could have gone, I could go because people don't check this. They don't look. They're in the moment of the auction. There's a buy it now for cheaper than what the auction's going. You're like, people are bidding this up. You could, the the second guy could go buy buy one cheaper right now uh, as a buy it now and be done with it. Have you ever seen that happen? Oh, I've, I've seen it way too many times and, and people pointed out, I, I think one of the things that really jumps out, this was on eBay, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. When eBay gets an auction that ends within an hour, it turns to that red bold font. I think if it's right. less than 24 hours, it's the black bold font. But when you see that red, red is just, it creates a sense of urgency. It's such an intense color. Whereas I don't really see that too much on like auction house sites or various other platforms. I I know that on whatnot, uh, when it gets under 10 seconds, it will turn red. And I, I do feel that sense of urgency once it gets into that time frame too. But it's amazing how I, I bet that contributes a lot too, is that when people see that number and they associate that color with limited time, it just creates this sense of urgency and almost this 
anxiety that stems from FOMO, but it, it just eliminates everything uh, in the meantime, which, which is just fascinating and probably has ended up costing a lot of us money at, at some point in time if, if we're the ones who have ended up going for some of those auctions. But I think if you just look at it in the grand, grand scheme of things, again, it, it happens to all of us. Even we'll, I'm sure that it will happen to both of us at some point, even though we're sitting here talking about it right now. But I, I think if you just look at it in the big picture and look at it overall, if you're making good decisions and practicing patience, overall, it will it will reflect in what your collection looks like. And I mean, that's your, I think what's cool about the video that you did is that you have the spreadsheet that has this data on it that I was able to look at as well. And it's a visual representation. But personally, I'm a visual learner. So when I see that, I can just kind of see those numbers. And it shows that like, yeah, there might've been one or two things here that you could critique or whatever, but overall your method has worked out pretty well for building a collection for, I guess, as cheap as possible <laughs> for what you were looking for. Well, I think you hit the the takeaway exactly on the head just now, and you probably didn't even know that you just said it. Dr. Beckett, when he was here visiting and looking at my cards, he goes, I wish more people would, instead of trying to buy the best cards, would try to build the best collection. And meaning, okay, if they're lower grades, it's okay if it takes you a long time, just build a great collection, build the best JT collection, the best Mike collection, the best whoever collection, your collection. And it it doesn't, again, have to, you, you don't have to necessarily spend a lot of money. You can, maybe you buy one or two cards a year because that's what you can afford because that's what you like. And okay know that it's a long game, have the long game in mind. It's weird though. You don't necessarily think, I don't know what my collecting is going to look like a decade from now, you know, five years from now, 20 years from now, I have no idea. But, and if you would have told me 20 years ago that I would have the collection that I have today, I would have called you a big fat liar. I'd have been like, there's no way, but things change over time. Our personal circumstances change over time, uh, both good and bad right? You can uh, get a raise, get a better job, uh, get your kids out of college and have a lot more discretionary income, which helps you to buy cards that you couldn't buy necessarily during a certain season of life, or you lose your job or a family member passes away and it just causes a lot of strain. And you just know that that marathon has ups and downs within it. If you ran a marathon, you're not going to be sprinting the whole time. You're going to pace yourself. You're going to, you're going to run at a rate that allows you to finish. Not one that where you run out of gas halfway through or three quarters of the way through. And so if you think about what is, where do I want to go with my collection? What collection do I want to build and work backwards and go, okay, I need to pace myself in this manner to make that come to fruition. Is that a good psychology way to think about it? I don't know. I think it is, but I wouldn't, I think the big takeaway that I would want to instill with that is that it's not a linear path to Correct. get there. It, it, there's, as you said, it is ups and downs. It's, and we never have it all figured out. I mean, for you personally, I know that your journey, you dabbled in player collecting and 
kind of that those experience kind of morphed you into how you choose to collect now. And it took many years for you to get to where you are now and really carve out your own niche. I've done the exact same thing really with just going through different phases. So you're not going to find what's perfect for you on the first attempt. And if you do, you're probably the exception and not the, the standard, I would say. It takes people a long time to figure out exactly what they want to collect. And then also a long time to really accumulate that and, and build it up and work towards those goals and perhaps even modify those goals along the way. Uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you first started your three decades set, it was just the 60s, 70s, and 80s of tops cards. Yep. And now you've expanded it to the fifties and, and possibly pursuing player runs. And then you kind of also added in the last tops card. And that's just little things that you picked up along the way through various discoveries as well. And those are things that you really only learn through experience or things that you realize that you like through experience. You're not going to have it all perfectly mapped out, but having some sort of idea in mind of where you want to be is definitely helpful being flexible with that, uh, but also not, you want to be flexible, but you don't want to bend and break with, with your ideas. You don't want to just kind of be all over the place in the sense that there's no structure because that can also be, you know, what, where are you really going towards at the end? And I think that goes into what Dr. Beckett said of buy, building the best collection, not just buying the best cards because you can, I mean, just go look at what are the most valuable cards and try to target those. But that really, I don't know if there's much of a purpose behind that, besides just trying to acquire really expensive cards. So right. finding that purpose and taking the time to develop it, I think is just essential to become, a, I guess, happy with your collection. Down the road, right. Well, I want to shift gears now in, in the second half of this video this episode, I want to talk about the data that I did send you and you and I talked offline. So once I, uh, I keep, just so you guys know, every year I go and I pull values off of vintage card prices, VCP, uh, and I just go, okay, what was it on December 1st? And that's kind of my, my mark of value on different cards in my collection. I track a lot of them. And JT, after I did this, he said, hey, send me, can you send me the raw data? And it shows how the cards have moved over time and what rank they were last year, the year before. I think I go back to 2019 on that in terms of rankings. And I sent it to you. And your first impression to me was, oh, this is going to be fun. I've got some things, you know, that I'm gleaning from this after looking at it. And I think what I want to go over with you is what were your takeaways from actually looking at the data, whether it's player specific, uh, different issues, card issues that are maybe under or overvalued, um, and just your general thoughts. Well, where should we start with this? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of takeaways here. I, I think to, I guess, transition from what we were previously talking about. The first takeaway I had is that on the very left columns of the spreadsheet you sent me has the 2019, 2020, 21, and 22 ranks. 
and you see this curve where it kind of goes, well, I'm going to go backwards here like this. And that is in terms of the number of items on the list. So there's very few items and a lot of little blank spots because these were cards you didn't have back in 2019. So they weren't ranked there. Uh, and you see that kind of fill in a bit more in 2020. It fills in even more in 21. And then it fills in even more in 2022. So that was one of the things that it's, it feels like it scales pretty well, where you were able to add probably roughly the same amount of value in terms of what you spent on your collection. It just might have meant fewer cards. I know this year you said in your video that there are only nine newcomers to the list in 2022, as uh, opposed to 2020. Right. So when you had done that, but some of the cards that you added here were a 49 Bowman Satchel Page, 1953 Topps Mickey Mantle, and a 1952 Bowman Mickey Mantle, all of which cracked your top 10 uh, in spots 4, 9, and 10, respectively. So you might have added fewer cards to this top 50 list that came just this year, but there were a lot of entries that were higher on your list, which I thought was something that was interesting, uh, I guess, to start off with. How, how do you feel about that? Well, it's as you run the marathon of, of building a great collection, you get to a point where you've kind of picked off all the low hanging fruit, right? I still have plenty of $10 cards that I need to buy that I, several of which I bought from you yesterday uh, after you went to the show and picked some up for me, which I appreciate by the way. But yeah, you start going, okay, the stuff I need now, like on the autograph side, Hall of Fame autographs, I mean, the guys I need now, none of them are less than $1,000. And so that just simply means I can't buy as many in any given year. But when you do buy one, when you do get to the point where you're ready to pull the trigger, it instantly uh, garners a higher place in your collection just because of the pure value. You could buy, for example, 152 Bowman Mantle, or you could buy five or six, you know, lesser cards, right? Lesser valued cards. And unfortunately I'd already bought all the five or six lesser valued cards. It's kind of what I'm, what I'm saying. And so you end up going, well, I added nine cards to the top 50. Uh, I had a lot more cards than that to my collection, but I'm running out of those other cards to buy. I'm, I'm ha now having to go, all right, kind of got to save up and be ready to, to get into these big boys that, like for me, my goal is my last card for my four decade set that will, you know, the card that will complete it and be the last one to acquire will be the 52 tops mantle, you know, which will easily be at whenever I buy it, barring something unforeseen as will be the most expensive card in my collection. So it might be from the next to last card to buying the last card. It might be two years or, you know, I have to build up enough funds to be able to do that. You and I both, you know me too well, you know that's not going to be true. But um, in theory, it, it's not like I'm going to be able to buy the next to last card and then turn right around and buy the last card. There will be a gap of time where that purchase needs to be contemplated and and thought out and being patient with it. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or not. I think so. Or, or my original question. I left kind of open-ended there, but yeah, I, I think the patience, there's several things there. I mean, with a 52 mantle, first of all, when you go out to buy that card, you're not going to buy the first one that you see. 
And I think price on something like that is going to be something where you're going to buy the best example you can for the best price, which is really essentially the strategy that you've had for pretty much everything that appeared on that list. So in terms of what kind of greater we're looking at, what, what are the features we're looking at? I think that's kind of, again, that's flexible. You know what kind of card you want, but you are willing to compromise on certain things. You know what's important to you. And I think having that as the penultimate card in this journey adds more significance to it. I mean, having the last card be the 52 mantle is kind of climbing the the summit at that point in time. So uh, I want to ask you a question about that because sure. you had asked me, you know, kind of about if there were any trends among players that I saw. Mantle is one of the most interesting ones because from what I saw, a lot of the cards, there wasn't too much retread from the December 2021 price that you quoted and then the December 2022 price that you quoted. And on some of the ones where maybe they were a bit down, I found that just kind of digging into some of those sales histories for that specific rate of the card that you have, they were perhaps some of the lower sales that had happened in recent times of that card. So overall, the mantle market is one of the few that seems to still be, is it where it was in the peak of spring of 2021? No, it's not. But it is still kind of gained traction from this time last year where a very large majority of the market, you cannot say that. And that's both vintage and modern. With that said, do you have any, I guess, FOMO of whenever it is time to go after the 52 mantle that you should have bought it sooner because it could save you significant money? Of course, it wouldn't have been the last card and you might have had to you know, spend more now than you had wished, but it could end up saving you in the long run. So how do you feel about that? I think the, especially the 52 mantle that I will be looking for somewhere in the very low grade, you know, but high eye appeal type card. I think it's never going to be cheaper than it is today. It'll only get more expensive. The problem is I'm not ready to buy it. You know what I mean? Like that, I want it to be the last card. So I'm making that choice consciously, understanding what that means financially. Um, I, I still, you know, hope to win the lottery between now and then and it makes it no. Um, you actually have to play the lottery to win the lottery. Um, but seriously, though, it's not. Uh, yes, I should buy it today. Honestly, in fact, I should sell other things and buy that today. If I was just being as unemotionally attached as I could be and very um, objective about it, I, I should do that. And yet I will not, uh, cause I'm not objective. I am, it's very subjective for me. It's emotional. And so I, I'm not going to just sell off parts of my collection in order to pick up that card and then go back and get the other ones. Um, so I, that's my answer to that question. Um, what did you think about, I found it fascinating about Willie Mays and his cards. And I have a theory on why almost all the Willie Mays cards that I happen to own are way lower than they were a year ago. Do you have a theory on why that might be the case? I do. And it's quite remarkable because if you ask a lot of baseball fans who keep up with players from that era, the golden age of baseball, if you will, uh, 
it's very few people that would probably tell you that Mickey Mantle was a better player than Willie Mays. And I, myself included, I mean, I think that Willie Mays is arguably the greatest player of all time. Uh, and I certainly, I, I would rank him above Mickey Mantle myself. I would rank Hank Aaron above Mickey Mantle. And there's other guys too, like a, a Ted Williams, I'd say you could probably argue is better than Mantle. So Mantle though is kind of a, a poster child for for cards and a lot of people that I know of who maybe weren't as interested in modern or excuse me in uh, vintage cards as they were modern who have started to dabble in vintage they gravitate towards Mantle because he's the guy and when you're unfamiliar with something you often seek comfort in something that you feel that you can trust and there's this myth that Mantle cards never go down a spoiler they do uh, but yeah, generally speaking, they are pretty safe. A lot of them do retain their value and he's been the face of the hobby or at least the tops side of the hobby since, well, the 52 tops set came out. So, uh, looking at Willie Mays, I think that that is something that provides an opportunity because when the mantle market continues to rise, People generally seek the next best thing. That's why there was such a huge emphasis on second year cards kind of during the boom, because a lot of the rookie stuff, and this goes for both modern and vintage players. Um, I think I saw it a lot with the guys today, like Acuna and Soto and Tatis. People gravitated towards the second year stuff because they simply couldn't afford the rookie year stuff, or perhaps they already had that. So when you see someone like Willie Mays and you just see the values on his 52, 53, 54 cards and how much lower they are than really what they probably should be for how talented of a player he is and what his legacy is in the hobby, it, it kind of opens your eyes a bit. The one that stood out to me probably the most was your 54 Bowman Willie Mays is a particular one. It, it's a fourth year card. And it's kind of weird. There's that very small window between 52 and 50, uh, 50, 55, excuse me, where you have both Bowman and Topps releases. And generally speaking, the Bowman releases during that time are very much, I don't know, like overlooked. I, I think you use the term to me privately is criminally undervalued. And, uh, <laughs> I, I definitely can see that. I don't think that they are as pretty as the tops examples, admittedly. Uh, you know, the 54 Bowman design is is not one of my favorites personally, but you can get a, a one, choose your grading company, SGC, PSA. And if you're, if you get a not so great looking one, you're looking at right around the hundred dollar mark. And I mean, I don't know if you could really do that for a lot of like, you certainly couldn't get a mantle for that price. Uh, even a guy like Hank Ariel might be tough to get a, get around that price for you know, early to mid fifties cards. So that was one of the ones that kind of stood out to me. I'm not sure what your assessment was on the maze market, but it's kind of where I stand with it. Yeah. I mean, maze to me is uh, he absolutely, I, was, I thought maze, Jackie, Koufax, there were guys that just not just took off, but, really into the stratosphere during the pandemic there were certain players uh satchel page you know just some guys that their card prices went through the roof during the pandemic and since that 
it's like they they're almost back to where they were. You know, they're still a little bit higher than they were pre-pandemic, but not significantly so. And the the point of that is, I think, especially after Hank Aaron died, to me, uh, that was a pretty mo- telling moment when you have, oh man, Hank Aaron died. Who's next? I think people look around and go, all right, who might be the next shoe to drop here? And it's Mays is the oldest living Hall of Famer. Uh, besides Whitey Herzog, oldest living player is Willie Mays. Then you've got uh, Koufax is up there. I mean, you've got these guys that are still alive and the old adage of it's always better to buy their stuff while they're still alive was going around after Hank Aaron died. Like, ooh, who should who's still alive that we can go get? And so it caused this rapid ascent of card prices for Mays, especially as rookie. Uh, I don't know if you have my spreadsheet pulled up. If you can look at the Maze rookie, I have a PSA 2, 51 Bowman. What uh, was that at the peak? Because I also went back and found peak prices during the the boom for a lot of these cards. Do you know what it is? Do you have that close by? Yeah, it was. So I, I'll give them the full rundown here, I guess. So you yeah. had purchased it for $1,600 at the 2019 National. So this was July of 2019. Um in December of 2020, that card had pretty much doubled. It was at $3,400. And then you have this insane run-up where it more than triples in price to $10,495 as its peak price. And this is for a 2, a PSA 2, not a 6 <laughs> or a 7 or anything. And then it retreads this time last year to 6300 and now a, a bit more of a decline down to just under five grand. at 4920 So again, it it is up. I mean, it's over triple what it was back in the summer of 2019. But you're talking about a 53% drop from the peak. And I mean, in any other market that isn't card related, we would call that a crash, which is kind of uh it's kind of bizarre to think that a Willie Mays rookie, such a classic card would be one that crashes but it it lends your mind to kind of wonder is this a correction is it an undercorrection, or is it an overcorrection? and uh, i think that's the question that we're trying to figure out now is where is the bottom on this or where will be the new bottom on it and i don't think we quite have the answer to that yet there's a lot of uncertainty right now but uncertainty also breeds opportunity so it it's something to keep in mind, I guess, if you're out there in the market for certain Willie Mays cards, this may be the best time. I hear a lot of people at shows saying, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait for this to drop. And you want to be careful not to wait too long. We always want to time the market perfectly. But as soon as you figure out how to do that, let me know, because uh, I still haven't found a way to do it. And I would love to uh, love to know how it's done. So. So ironically, this is where kind of both conversations collide. If you practice patience and you were like, you know, either you were forced into patience because you got outpriced, you know, priced out of being able to buy the cards. Well, now you kind of may have a second swing at the ball. You may have an opportunity here to pick up some cards that you were simply unable to buy. Uh, you mentioned the 54 Bowman. I think <clears throat> really and, and Mays is one example. There are, I don't know, 
eight or 10 vintage players that you could look at and go, man, they're quote unquote, better cards, rookie cards, second year, significant year cards have all probably not done the Willie Mays thing that dramatically, but certainly are cheaper today than they were a year ago. Um, overall, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but my 50 top 50 cards last year in 2021, December, when I looked at the same 50, not including the nine that I added, but if I, if I went back and said, all right, what are those 50 from last year worth today? It was down three and a half percent. And that sounds like, Oh, that's pretty much even. And that's true. That's a true statement, but that's looking at all 50. If you individualize them out, you will see cards that are certainly up and you will see cards that are certainly down. And so a huge moral to this, and, and hopefully you're hearing this, you need to go look, <laughs> like you need to go research. You need to go find out. Maybe it's a card that, oh man, I, I did, it got crazy during the pandemic and I never bought it. Maybe you haven't revisited that. I would encourage you to go look again, like maybe see if now, it's at an appealing price point that makes sense for you and for your collection and for your circumstances. So just don't, I would say never give up because it, not everything's still up. Not everything has gone up over the last year. Um, so revisit that. That's, that's a piece of advice. Uh, one thing I want to add to that really quick, and this is something I, I just thought of while you were speaking uh, just now is that you say it was down at 3.5%. And I think what's really interesting is that if you look at one of the biggest losses, the maze, if I'm not mistaken, is the second largest in terms of total value lost from 21 to 22. Okay. This time last year at $1,380. And that to me is a kind of a statistical outlier because it's pretty much more than double your I guess, quote unquote, biggest losses among everything else that was on the list with one exception, because there's one card on your list. And I think you and I both know which one it is. Uh, that, Mike Trout. It's got to be yes, Mike Trout. the Mike Trout rookie, which is down $1,489. And based on the total overall value of your collection, 1.5% of that is probably just from that card alone. So if you look at the Willie Mays card and the trout, and you take those out as what I would kind of consider statistical outliers, that would really lend itself that a lot of the market hasn't changed. It was neutral. Yeah. And what's fascinating. Great, great point. Yeah. Sorry. No. And what's fascinating about that too, is that it's not because everything was stagnant, but there were some big risers and some big fallers in there. So there are a lot of adjustments that are going on right now. And, it just somewhat contradicts what I said earlier about patience, but if you think that the time to strike is right, go for it. Um, and if you don't think it is, then wait. I would only, you don't want to ever force yourself into a situation. And that kind of lends to the other point that I wanted to make is I see a lot of people get fixated on comps. And I've been very uh, vocal about what I think about that. And don't get me wrong, it's a great tool. I use them every single day, multiple times a day. But what I think people get fixated on is that they'll see one sale of a particular card that goes for way cheaper than all the other ones. 
And with vintage, it's just, you really have to look at the specifics because it could be that the auction ended at a wrong time. It could be that it was an auction that was an auction and not a buy it now because auctions are typically going to go lower than the buy it now. There are exceptions, of course, but that's something that does happen. And then there's the eye appeal. A PSA 5 can mean so many different things. It could be a beautiful example that has a small little wrinkle on the back. And it's a five because that's the rule. Whereas you could have one that's off-centered. It looks like it's miscut. It can also be differences uh, in terms of when it was graded. There are some that subscribe to the theory that vintage cards are graded harder today, not just by PSA, but SGC or wherever else you send them in. So is a seven that was graded back in 2011 the same as a seven that was graded last month? That's up for you to decide. So if you're happy with the example and it's reasonable, do you want to pay top dollar? Of course not. Nobody wants to. But if you're happy with it and it's a price that is at least reasonable, that's when your patience will pay off, I feel. You don't have to always wait out for the best possible deal because that doesn't always coincide with getting the best possible card. And I think that is just something that has really been lost in how analytical today's market is. Uh, you brought up the trout. I, I've got to just tell you guys the numbers because they're fascinating. Uh, the trout card right now is worth around $1,400. Uh, at the peak, which was February 2021 for that card, it was over 7500 That's a over 80% drop from the peak to what it is today. With that being a combination, I think, of just people looking around and going, this is a highly mass-produced base card, you know, that there are plenty of 10s. And I think more 10s are being added all the time in that such that the pop report's going to continue to grow. And and therein lies kind of the essence of the problem with modern in general. Mike Trout's, you know, arguably the greatest player of a, of a generation, right? And his card prices have gone down significantly. Um, again, this isn't a modern card show, but it, it just goes to show the difference. But again, that happened to Willie Mays too. You know, it didn't go down uh, that dramatically. I mean, from the peak, we're currently down 53%. But like you said, that's still a lot, right? The Mantle rookie from peak that I own, the PSA 5 that I own, is down almost 50% from the peak. So... <clears throat> I think the peak would be a terrible metric if you if you use that as I, I think it'd be dangerous to use it as man from there it's down this much that's a great deal and I think it's dangerous to go hey that's where it got to it's got to get back to that there is nothing that tells us that that, that either of those are true so don't just look at peak prices and say oh man what a screaming hot deal I need to go buy a trout rookie well, you might want to buy a Trout Rookie uh, if that's part of your collection and you you don't have one yet. Hey, they're cheaper than they've been in a long time. Let me put let me tell you that. Uh, but don't just buy it because you think it's going back to seventy five hundred, or you think a Maze Rookie is going back to ten grand, or whatever. Uh, that's that's a dangerous game to play, and you're not going to win very many times. I have a few counterpoints to that, <laughs> and I, okay, I think go. That, I love it. Yeah. The, the peak thing, I totally agree with, where if you're thinking that it could get back to that price, am I telling you that it's never going to happen in your lifetime? 
No. And I think actually on some of the things on your list that probably within the next, we'll say 15 years, some okay. of them will get back to that price again. I'm not going to say it's going to happen overnight, but they could. I think right now what a lot of people are doing, they're trying to figure out one of the big things I hear right now on social media it shows is rarity. What is actually rare? What is something that is difficult to acquire? Because if you want, you have a few dozen at least options right now. If you want to go buy a PSA 10 Mike Trout rookie, right. there are plenty that are available for sale. Now, are you going to get one at the price that we determined of 1376? Uh, I'm not sure. You might have to wait around a little bit. You might have to catch an auction that's ending at the right time to get that number. Kind of ties into what I said about if, if you see a number that works for you and you think it's reasonable, go for it. But I, I think with the trout thing, one of the things was was the FOMO, where people told themselves, well, I'm going to get it when it's $1,500. You know, when it was $1,500, people said, well, it'll go down and I can get one later. And then it got to 2000 They said, well, I can get one later. It'll be cheaper. Then I got the 2500 and it sat in that 25 to 3K range for a very long time. And then that's when it had that little kind of shoot up to 7,500. And ever since then, it's been dropping ever since. And I think people right now are still trying to figure out what exactly is a fair price for a Mike Trout US 175 PSA 10. Do you and that think... can be, I'm sorry. No, me... no, I was going to ask you, I'll add on to this and ask you a question. Do you think that the trout appreciation in price was you can at least partially call it was contributed because of the new people coming into the hobby, not knowing a ton about cards, but they know Mike Trout. Let's you know, there was just a lot more demand. All all the people coming to the hobby. Well, you gotta own a Mike Trout rookie in a 10. Do you think that played into it at all? I think it's one of those cards that I mean its reputation is almost larger than the card itself. It's the same thing as the 52 mantle, which a lot of people call one of the most overrated cards of all time because it's not a rookie card, uh, but it is. I mean, it's the poster child for tops cards. And the 2011 Mike Trout is this generation's 52 mantle or 89 Griffey, uh, upper deck Griffey. And it was ju it's just one of those kind of status symbol cards in a sense where it has exceeded what it actually is. And I think that's why you're seeing that now. And I, I think that really does attribute a lot to the market. That's why we've seen Mantle prices go up because the legend of Mickey Mantle is what has really driven his prices. Our, our friend Eric, those back pages, only says sports good versus sports card good where the best players don't necessarily command the much premium. And it's because there is all this lore there. I think that's why when Hank Aaron passed away, there was so much interest in his cards because, I mean, let's face it, when someone passes away, there's a lot of memorial type of pieces that are put out. You have yeah. different forms of media to consume. And people hear about the lore of Hank Aaron or perhaps they're reacquainted with it. And it kind of almost makes it where the lore of Hank Aaron <laughs> – supersedes Hank Aaron himself and kind of the perception of him. And that's not to discredit anything towards Hank Aaron because he's one of my personal all-time favorite players. But when that happens, I think that's what really drives these card prices. And 
again, it, it just, it adds to the market where it's just something that you can't predict. You can't predict, well, when is the lore of somebody going to grow? Um, that's, I mean, we can talk about player performance, increasing prices, and that happens for the newer stuff with on a vintage show like this. We're not really talking about player performance. Uh, you know, I don't know what Carl Yastrzemski is going to bat next year or any strikeouts <laughs> that Sandy Koufax is going to have. That's not really relevant to this discussion, but it, I think it's something that can, uh, that can tie into more so you want to be patient, but not too patient. I know we've kind of been all over the board here in the past hour with that. Um, but it's, it's just something to keep in mind when you're, when you're trying to think through this. Yeah. I, I think I may have just talked myself into another theory by talking through this, which is the great thing about having discussions is a, neither one of us have all this figured out, but two heads are certainly better than one. And when you get to talk to friends about, Hey, what do you think's going on here? Um, trying to read the tea leaves. I just mentioned all these new collectors coming into the hobby. There's over the last two or three years, zero question in my mind that they're all going to stay right. Certainly some of them are very temporary. Some of them have already left the hobby, but I bet there will still be more collectors than there were 10 years ago. There, there'll be a net add of collectors in the hobby. And as those collectors mature over time and they kind of evolve through that uh, collecting evolution that I've talked about before in episodes and they start maybe, Hey, I'm going to start getting some vintage. I've got all the modern stuff. I've, I've bought all the players that I watch and all that kind of jazz. I'm going to start buying some more vintage stuff that you'll see a natural demand increase based on just more people out there actually looking for vintage. And that's, I think that transition happens for some quicker and some it'll take a little bit longer. And so I, I think you'll just see this trickling of if you were to survey the percentage of collectors that collect vintage now versus the percentage of collectors that collect vintage later, I think it'll be higher. Does that make sense? I agree with that. I think you have said it before, and it's it's an old adage that I've heard many times where you're not born a vintage collector. You just kind of become one over right. time. And uh, I think part of that, too, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet was some of the biggest areas of growth among your list were the pre-war cards. I think all of the Gaudi cards that are on your list have increased. All of the play ball cards have increased. In fact, I think one of the best risers in terms of percentage yield would be the ted williams uh 41 play ball in fact i'm trying to pull it up here yeah so you see um you had purchased it for 300 dollars at some point in 2020 <laughs> no it was uh, uh i actually bought it raw and i graded it myself believe it or not but i bought that, it for 300 raw that is true um, and then at the end of 2020, it was 995. End of 2021, 995 again. And then this year, we see it at $1,710. I mean, that's essentially doubling up. I think it works out to a 70% increase, a little above that on that one. Right. But all of these pre tops issues, as people, I guess, try to explore more, I guess, maybe even the people who were into vintage but we're only really familiar with the tops issues because it's it's the safe thing to go to it's the bread and butter now kind of explore into pre-war and you see this rise in the gaudi issues or 
the T206s, or even your more obscure sets, which is a bit difficult to really track just because any specific grade, there may not be a lot of sales. I know that one of the cards on your list was a, what is it, like a BVG5 of the Zach Wheat T206? Right. I mean, there's there's not too many BVG5 Zach Wheats that are out there. So how do you really track what what that is? It kind of requires a bit more math and a bit more, I guess, speculation, whereas you can't really use the concrete data. But generally speaking, I've seen an, an increase in that. And I've, that, again, ties into the lore where, well, you thought that Mickey Mantle was great. Um, and there are people who were, you know, who are still alive who saw Mickey Mantle play about someone like Honus Wagner. How many people are still alive that saw Honus Wagner playing and can, can tell you about it? I would think zero or pretty close to zero. <laughs> right. So as it kind of just now has become that people know what they know about Honus Wagner through accounts that they heard from other people because there's really no firsthand accounts. And I think that will contribute more and more as you see the generation that saw Mickey Mantle play when they're no longer around the legend of Mickey Mantle will grow more and more because there won't be as many firsthand accounts of what he did. So I think that's part of it too, where there's just maybe it's also fatigue with some of the ultra modern players, not performing as we had hoped. There's probably multiple factors, but that was something else that I thought was interesting. We haven't touched on yet. Yeah. Well, man, I know you and I could talk for hours and hours more, and maybe a few of you might listen, but uh, I'm going to let the rest of you off the hook and uh, thank JT for being on the show today. We covered a lot of cool ground. Uh, always great to share insights with you, JT, and hear your thoughts. Uh, you're just a guy that young in age, but old in spirit. And so I really love that in terms of what you've learned and, you know, self-taught and just how much you're absorbing in terms of information and the way you look at the card market, the, the card hobby, I love it. And it's very infectious. And also, uh, I don't know if it's life giving to me, but certainly spirit, you know, you just, you, it, it's enthusiastic, uh, rub off maybe that, that comes to me. So I appreciate you, JT. I appreciate your friendship and appreciate you being on the show. You know, I'm glad to still be the young guy. I just had a birthday a few weeks ago, and shortly after that, I had someone ask me what grade I am in. So uh, that <laughs> that really helps encourage me that I'm I'm still young and, and energetic, even though I'm now a year older. But no, in all seriousness, I love conversations like this. I hope that you know at least one thing that we said in this episode uh, will stick with someone. It's easy to listen to these things and just kind of say. Oh, that was fun. Great job, guys. And then kind of move on throughout this. But I know part of, I guess, the goal, at least when I do my show, and I'm sure with yours as well, is that hopefully it does impact people in a positive way. Take away from it whatever you may from this show. But uh, I, you know, I, I love the show. I listen to it whenever I've got to drive somewhere. And uh, I've certainly learned quite a bit myself. So hopefully we provided that to uh, everybody listening today. Well, we always try to, my goal on this show is to educate, inspire, uh, and maybe even entertain you guys. So hopefully one of those boxes was checked today. Thanks, JT, again, and we will catch you guys next week for another episode. Keep collecting.